It's the TFC Audio Project. Hello, wonderful humans. Welcome back to the TFC Audio Project. Today, I'm speaking with Mitch Harbaugh, who's a foot nerd from Tampa, Florida, and someone who I really enjoy learning from because he's a high-knowledge human and a great thinker. So, Mitch, thanks for being here and uh, taking time to have a conversation. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. No worries, man. It's always a treat having you on here. And um, on today's menu, we have some deeper topics to unpack. So we're just going to dive right in. And um, I'm thinking a good place to start is with the concept of decision making, because I think a lot of the other topics we're going to dive into um, stem sort of from that foundation. And I think um, it's probably a term many people have heard, but I think um, let's kind of unpack a little bit of nuance with regards to that. So when you hear the word decision making, what do you think of and how do you um, kind of define decision making? So when it comes to decision making, I think that just initially people don't, people aren't aware of all the different things that come into play when they end up actually making a decision. So this would be things like, what is a social norm? What do I put value on? So there's almost like a, if I'm going to decide something, I may be unaware that I am weighing cost benefit. Uh, if I make a decision, what that's what is that going to be? Am I going to choose something that's an immediate reward, or am or am I going to delay myself the immediate reward if I think that the long term reward is worth it more? And all of these types of things come into play. And um, I'm sure we'll dive into it about how the brain is kind of like a predictive coding type thing. But all of these different aspects come into play to where when a person makes a decision, it's not just simply, hey, I feel this in the moment and now I'm going to decide to do this. But there's so much where you're basing things based on previous previous information, previous context of what happened when you made similar decisions, how it made you feel. If you have a clear understanding of your goals, that provides a potential uh better chance of choosing, okay, now I understand what I'm weighing and measuring with cost, benefit, delay. Is there a risk? Is it? Is there a probability of risk? Is there a guaranteed long-term loss that I just don't know when it's coming and I kind of have to make my decision to do something at the right time? So it ends up being a lot of different pieces that come together to provide a very different context and view of how a person ends up making um, a decision. And that can be from you know, I'm going to buy something off of an online store to I'm choosing to make this health decision or change my lifestyle or try this exercise thing out, um, whatever it might end up being. Yeah. And I think, you know, maybe in order to give it context, like why the heck are we talking about decision making, right? How does that relate to um, sort of health? And I think it's important for people to know that the, your health is the sum total of decisions you make regarding uh, your behaviors, right? Mm -hmm. And you know, number one, without understanding health, we really don't have a foundation for being able to make wise decisions that align with health. Um, and number two, I think it's important for people to know that most decisions that we make uh, are not, um, are done automatically, mm -hmm. are done for us based on previous um, decisions we've made in that same context or in that same situation. And so, you know, really being attentive to how am I making decisions and, you know, what is even the decision-making process, right? Like decision-making is the process of making choices by identifying a decision, gathering some information, assessing options, selecting the best option uh, based on the current state. And then, you know, like it's a, it's quite the process. And I think, you know, and even one you could add at the end is after you take action, review the decision, determine whether that was the best decision for you. and. Mm -hmm our brains are so magical that we just kind of take for granted that these, that all those things, um, 
can happen, but many of them don't because from an efficiency standpoint, the brain thinks, well, I'm going to make a lot of decisions for this person automatically so that this person can think of more relevant things like in the, you know, ancestral context, you should probably be able to survive. You, you want to focus on surviving. And so thinking of like which foot is going in front of the other when you're walking, not really the best decision to focus energy on. So a lot of decisions get made from, for us automatically. Um, but if we really put energy into understanding decision-making, we can be more involved in the decision-making process so that we get off the Ferris wheel of autopilot. And I think that that's where a lot of these health changes come from is like increasing your understanding. So you know how to make wise choices and then tuning into the process of decision-making and allocating energy to it in order to understand why you're making the decisions you, you have been making. Like why, why do we eat Doritos when we know Doritos aren't good for us and we shouldn't be eating them, right? Like this is, there's a lot of decisions that are, that can be incongruent with our aspirations yet we make them anyway. And mm -hmm. so understanding the process allows you to kind of like unpack that and know like, why do I, cause I ask myself this all the time. I'm like, why do I do the shit I do? Half the shit I know that I, I don't want to be doing, but like I still do them. And so yeah. Because fundamentally, decision-making is problem-solving. And, um, and yeah, as it relates to health, there's so many decisions that, you know, and you hear people say should, could, want to, need to. Um, and oftentimes, that refers to something they, they think they should be doing, but they're not doing. And so that's just a disconnect between where in the decision-making process am I, am I breaking down? And how can we help people identify those, those spaces, those opportunities, I guess they would be. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's, it's, <laughs> there's a lot there, right? Like when you put decision-making, like, first of all, the list you sent me was like stellar. I learned so much shit yesterday from all the things you put there. Like I knew constraints versus objectives, but all the different laws and stuff like that, I knew nothing about. And I was so, I'm always so stoked to have podcasts with you because you send great frameworks. And then also it's like, I don't know most of the shit that you put on there. So it's great. Um, yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah. And uh, so from, from a decision-making perspective, a lot of what we're going to talk about is within the, within the foundational understanding of decision-making. This all relates to decision-making. <laughs> and maybe a good place to go next is, is to compare constraints versus objectives. Because when it comes to health, I think this is a really important point. And I think, you know, we can both relate on the fact that health is more play than anything. Um, yep. from our perspective, but I, I don't think that that's a popular perspective that's taken. And so, you know, can you ex expand a little bit on objectives versus constraints and, you know, why, you know, how people mostly are using objective-based um, systems when in reality, nothing is linear in the natural world and right objective, uh, you know, objective-based um, thinking really depends on a linear um, process, whereas constraints really allows much more freedom. So yeah, I'd love to hear you unpack, uh, objectives versus constraints and kind of talk about that a bit. Yeah. So I think I'll preface with how this fundamentally is, is, is relating to our decisions of health, um, is most of what we have now when it's objective based leads to us interacting with the world as an object that gets manipulated by things, very deterministic, A, B, C, D. Um, when instead, when we take that constraint-based view, and, and I'm going to get into the differences in a second, um, we're much more of a subjective experience within it. So when someone takes an objective-based view, uh, let's use the example of they want to get stronger or they want to lose weight. So they place a number on that. I want to be able to lift this much weight on this lift, or they want to be this body weight and this body fat percent. 
So a lot of them are quantifiable, like just to put like objectives are frequently quantifiable and Mm -hmm. simplistic sort of goals, let's call it. Yep. So when you take this thing and now you, you essentially take a measure or a metric of health and you make it a target to be achieved, now it's an objective, you end up gaming the system and treating your body as an object that gets manipulated. So now the process becomes, well, in order to reach this weight on the lift or this body weight and this body fat percent, I now need to optimize every process along the way to get there. So every step needs to take me closer, right? Like life's not linear, yet the decisions I'm making, I'm expecting to be linear towards reaching that goal. Mm. And when we do so, um, what's his name? Uh, Kenneth Stanley, in, in a book called Why Greatness Can't Be Planned, he, he works with artificial intelligence. It essentially would be, we're saying these are the perfect stepping stones to reach our goal, when in reality, we have no idea what the, what the appropriate stepping stones are. And so this is where I like to say, your health, your goals that you have, the more um, like courageous and out there they kind of are, the less objective you need to be and just consider it as a search space. So we're talking about the search space of our health and then more specifically the search space of strength training and the search space of nutrition and our body composition. And so those are complex goals. It's not a bad thing, but if we ignore that they're complex, we end up falling to deception, right? Because if a problem is, is complex, it's naturally deceptive. Otherwise it wouldn't be complex and it would be probably very easy to solve. So when we take this thing and we make it an objective, I've essentially taken the measurement, I've made it a target, and now to achieve this target, I'm going to optimize along the way, but I'm going to end up accidentally and unintentionally gaming the system, and then there's uh, there's a deceit that I've actually improved my health. So for example, uh, this is where we'll see someone so hyper-focused on their body weight that they hit it on the scale, but mentally they're not as healthy, they have extreme levels of stress. Perhaps maybe their hormone function isn't going as well now because if they've dipped below to such a low weight and such a low body fat percent, that's going to negatively impact them there. Or maybe they're considered to be still on like the healthier end uh, as far as their uh, actual health metrics go, but now they can't enjoy social situations because they're so stressed about going over on their macros, right? Mm. So I've took the the quantity of food and I made it. This is a goal to be achieved. Uh, And so this ties back into a broader concept we're talking about objective or constraints, which is, am I trying to explore what I'm doing in my health or am I trying to optimize it? And we don't want to optimize until we really know that this is an obvious thing that is very clear that this is the next stepping stone to be able to improve what I'm doing. The more complex the goal is, the more exploration is required. Uh, This was found out to have a lot of support in the artificial intelligence community, again, with Kenneth Stanley, where they had robots in a maze, and they were either doing a novelty search, which would be exploration, they were doing a optimization search, which would be exploitation, or just a random search. So you have these robots in a maze, and the goal for the random one is there's no set final goal. You had the optimization-based one, which was every step you need to be getting closer and closer to the exit of the maze. So that'd be objective, right? That would be objective. And then the novelty search one, our constraint is just do something new each time. Whatever it is, doesn't matter. Just do something new. Um, And out of the 40 trials in in the maze case, um, the random robot was able to successfully navigate four times. The uh, optimization-based robot was only successful three times. And so that would be the objective. And then the novelty search constraint-based robot was successful, I believe, 38 out of 40 times. Right. Um, Which is like 
absolutely wild. So it's kind of like paradoxically, if you don't directly try to achieve your objective, but you're searching in the space that has it, you're more likely to achieve it or at least experience something like serendipitous, which is like a really good surprise. Um, and that's where the importance of that exploration comes into play. So now if we're talking about how do I set a constraint related to getting stronger and to maybe improving my, uh, the, the metrics of my body, well, I still would have those measures. I still need to track this is what my weight is on the lift. And I should still obviously track my body weight, my body fat percent. But instead, we could set the constraint of, okay, well, when you exercise, we're going to focus on feeling the appropriate muscles and looking at your movement through the lens of skill, neural output, which is the ability to contract a muscle, the quality of muscle that you have, right? Is it, has it been injured? Is it not injured? What's the fascia gliding like? Uh, and then the quantity, do you literally have one bigger muscle than the other? Um, that's one of my favorite constraints to use when I assess people, when I work with them with injuries. And that's actually, uh, something called the performance box from strong fit. And so I've set that constraint. I haven't specifically said, I'm going to have someone do the exact number of sets and reps, what style the program is going to be. If I'm going to have them do like eccentric movements or, or non-eccentric movements, I've just said, this is what we're going to look at. And we're going to explore and set this constraint on the search space of you getting stronger. And then when I do that constraint, then I learn along the way in the relation to the food piece, it would be, okay, well, obviously protein is going to be important for building muscle um, amongst other things, right? Uh, oversimplification, but carbs can give us fuel and fats can help us like focus and have sustained energy. But maybe I set the constraint of, I want to optimize your digestion of that. Well, that changes probably when I'm going to eat the protein. I have to then mm. be aware of the states that I'm in throughout the day. Am I in freeze? Am I in flow? Am I in fight? Am I in flight? Because that's going to dictate those require different sources of energy. Those require, um, or those will change digestion. Um, and so that's going to be a constraint, optimized digestion. Well, now that all of a sudden changes what's happening. And then I set the constraint of monitor my uh, like viscera of what I feel throughout the day, my heartbeat, my breathing, so I can better understand what state I'm in, which will again, dictate what I'm eating. And then I can also monitor those states while I train, right? Like there's a reason why people that are sprinters look different than marathon runners. If I want to lose weight, but the only thing I do is extremely low intensity cardio. Well, you cannot train a bad diet, but you also like training is a huge aspect of, of how you get gains. Right. Yep. Um, so tying that all together, we have the exploration, which is the constraint based, or we have the optimization, which is the objective based. And it's kind of like, you know, two sides of a coin, but we're overusing the objective sense. And the main way that I like to really solidify this down is to go, if you're setting an objective, you're going, this is where I am. That's where I want to be. How do I get there? And you have no idea what to do to get there. And so you're just going to try stuff out. Um, but in the way of you think you're making the perfect decisions along the way, when we take a constraint-based approach, we go, this is where I am. That's where I was. I still have an idea of where I want to go, but what constraints got me to here? And then I set new constraints. And then when I hit the future me, I then look back again and go, okay, well, what I set these constraints, what happened? What did I learn? How did I do the things I was doing? What did I do? Instead of just, you know, checking the box off that I did something, now I can learn and make better decisions again. So the constraints allow us to more successfully update our decision-making because we're assessing what happened. And then I can continue to do my novelty search where it's okay if I'm not really sure what's going to work and what's not going to work because I don't know until I test it. But I'm significantly more likely to find the right stepping stone there if I go on the novelty search route and not so I'll say novelty search constraint-based and not optimization-based, uh, which is the objective-based or the target-based. 
Yeah, and I think you know something worth noting there is that in that robot AI maze problem, um, mm-hmm. when the objective-based algorithm uh, only only succeeded three times, the 37 out of 40 times that it failed, the robot got stuck in a corner because it mm-hmm. was blinded by the objective of get closer to the objective at all costs. Yep. It didn't it, it it didn't realize because that was the only programming that was given to it. <clears throat> I didn't realize that sometimes in order to get out of the maze, you have to actually go backwards. You have to go move away from the objective in order to find a different path to actually meet the objective. And, you know, I really shout out to those strong foot guys because they're G's and I'm, I'm talking to Julian next week on the podcast, which I'm stoked about, but you know, that it was really from some of their podcasts that I realized like fundamentally for me, at least health is a mindful novelty search. It's trying new things, but also being mindful enough to learn from the things you try, if they work, if they don't, how you can do a different variation. And, you know, like when you talk about gaming the system, the example that, that I was sort of thinking of is like, how can we give, you know, an extreme example to really illustrate this point is like, okay, you have an aspiration to be healthy. Based on that aspiration, you pare down and make the goal of losing 30 pounds, right? Yep. To lose 30 pounds, you can literally take like diuretics, diet pills and, and staple your stomach and you could probably yep. lose 30 pounds. Yeah. So you get to the objective, but you sacrifice the initial aspiration that actually stimulated that objective. Right. Mm-hmm. And so it's just, that's what, that's what we mean by gaming the system. You do everything at all costs to reach the objectives, but you lose sight of what even made you want to create that objective in the first place where, whereas, you know, and even from a decision standpoint, if you're analyzing your options, um, and you only have two options, well, you're going to choose the better of those two options. But mm-hmm. if you haven't explored the fact that there's 10 total options and there's probably the eight extra ones, there's probably way better decisions to be, to be able to, to make. Mm-hmm. You need to explore enough to have a big enough repertoire of decision options in order to optimize for the right one. So it's like this balance of exploring and then exploiting the data that you have. Because if you exploit early, you may shortchange yourself with options that are probably better that you haven't explored yet. And absolutely. Yeah. And I really, you know, that the the cool thing about a mindful novelty search is that you can't, you can't actually tell someone how to do it. No. Right. And I I think this is this weird thing in the world of health and fitness where people seem to think that their job is to tell people how to do it, not to empower them to explore and Mm -hmm. learn, right. When you're given the answer, if I, if you bring me a math problem and I say, here's the answer, you're like, great, I'll put the answer down. I got, I got the right answer on the test. You actually never learn how to solve the problem. Mm -hmm. And so you're always dependent on people giving you the solutions and better yet, that might not, that might be their solution, but it's probably not yours. And so I think it's just like this thing where the next generation health guide really has to be someone who helps people, um, gain ideas for how to explore, right? Like fundamentally, I think people have lost the confidence or even just a basic understanding of how to explore, like what is okay to try? um, Mm -hmm. And what can I feel confident in trying? And how do I process? How do I internalize what I'm learning? Like what things do I, what is the salient information to gather from this exploration that I can use to learn and direct better decisions? And I mean, it sounds complex, but when you really pare it down, it's like super simple. You know, instead of trying more of, instead of doing more of shit, try different shit. And then you'll automatically be guided towards like what resonates most with you because there's not one way of doing it. And like you said, it's like that, that path, you're trying to cross a river, you got to step on stones. Well, how do you know what stone to step on first? There's no way of knowing. The only way to find out is to try shit and then eventually find out where the stones are. Um, 
so yeah, I think that was, I think you put objectives and constraints on my radar and like that has mm. been, cause my life has always really been about constraints. It's like, okay, if I, if I feel I'm getting on my phone too late in the day and it's messing up my sleep, well, I create a constraint where an hour before I go to sleep, I don't use my phone. Right. And mm-hmm. just that constraint alone allows me, it doesn't tell me what I need to do in my pre sleep routine. It just says, don't do this. It leaves a lot of options open, but I think the constraint route allows for a more playful approach. It allows for way more freedom to explore than just the hard objective of like, I need to get there at all costs. And that means I can only do it in this way. And it's just a very unnatural way of thinking. Yeah. And it also makes it like people end up being uh, unintentionally very dogmatic about their approach. Like this is the school that I've learned from. This is what happened. Um, And it's like you're attacking their sense of self when you ask them to explore something different. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the main reasons why I also love constraints and the exploration approach. Because it's like, well, you're never really, I guess, like failing in the sense of like a bad way. You're just always learning new ways to either not do something or to do something and what happens. And that way you end up being able to learn from so many different fields, whether it's inside or outside of health, right? Because like we're talking about how this relates to health, but we're also talking about artificial intelligence, neuroscience, um, the constraint versus objective, that's something from economics and psychology, right? So like, we're talking about all these different things that people can learn from. Um, and I think the more someone learns to explore, they'll learn principles and laws that apply to multiple different fields, which that's likely going to be better than a methodology. And it's kind of like the idea of, well, the more you explore, that'll help you understand that there's for sure no way in hell that you're right about everything you say. And also the people (laughs) that you might really like learning from also probably aren't right about everything they say. So then it kind of always layers uh, a nice bit of like, I'm going to be open-minded, but I'm going to be skeptical. And then I have to test things out to see what happens. Yes. Yes. And yeah, that's very, very powerful. And I think that even the and exploring's fun. Like, let's be real. Exploring yeah. is fun. And even if you explore and you figure out something that you should not do, that's still valuable information, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> at, um, like a funny thing with Forest One, this like community campus we're developing, it backs mm-hmm. onto a mountain and it's a national, it's a um, provincial park It's protected, but there's trails. And I have this thing where there's a fire tower at the very top and you can take the conventional route that everyone takes and you can get there. And I know how long it takes me to get there. But what I've been trying to do is every single time I go, I take a different route, even if it's only for part of the route. And I've found routes that are like really fun. Some routes that you, you cannot take because they're literally impossible to go up and some that are way quicker and, and way more exciting, right? Way more movement variety gets stimulated by the path that you take. Yeah. And like that has been so fun, right? Because like doing the same path or same set of paths was kind of getting boring. And I was finding myself having to like really push myself harder to go and do that every time I was there. But now that it's like, I just get to explore. I got to try something different. A, I have to remember the previous ones that I took. So I have to literally mentally map out this face of the mountain to know like, okay, if I want to do something new, I have to remember the previous things I did or else mm-hmm. how do I know if it's new or not? And so it's not random, right? I think novelty search and I think Julian talked about this is like novelty search and doing something different is very different than random. Cause if you're doing something yes. random, you could theoretically do the same thing 10 times. If you're doing mm-hmm. a novelty search, you're doing something different every time, which requires you to have um, like a stored database of what was done in the past and the results you got. And then to compare that, it's like an ongoing uh, like Bayesian inference where you're constantly getting new data to update your understanding and model of the world and that was another thing I got from Julie. I feel like this Ooh. is this podcast is sponsored by Strong Fit. Let's be real. Shout out. <laughs> Huge shout out. Yeah. And so, but that way of thinking in, um, 
improbabilities is very powerful because it allows you to disidentify from any single perspective and marry to it because all it is, is your understanding. You're not, you know, I've accepted that I'm not certain about anything. Like I'm not even certain about gravity. I'm pretty certain. Right. But if someone had had like a truck and it was floating in the air, well, I wouldn't be so freaking certain about gravity anymore. Right. Like that piece of information would be very important. And I think not being certain about everything and having it all be probabilities allows you to be flexible and dynamic in taking in new information, factoring that into your current model, and then changing the probability accordingly. And it leaves you radically open-minded to not trying to defend your position with anything. It's just like, well, shit, I need, inf- I want information that I don't have. If this, person ha- if this person disagrees with me, I want that information. I want to understand that so that I can factor it into like my whole worldview. And if more people took that approach, we would have a much better ability to make sense of the world. Whereas right now everything's getting squirrely because, you know, the minute you censor something, you disable people's ability to explore and make sense of the world because Mm -hmm. you're essentially creating a barrier, creating junk in the ecosystem that requires clarity to, to like understand it. Um, so yeah, objectives and constraints, constraint. And and the cool thing about constraints too, is they can change, right? You can layer constraints, you can change constraints. Uh, whereas an objective is very rigid and like dogmatic, mm-hmm. it's like, that's all I want to do. And if you're not making progress, you often sacrifice how you get there. And that ends up like literally undermining the whole purpose of that objective in the first place. Yeah. So. Uh, we, uh, I'm, I'm going through a, um, I'm leading uh, an eight week growth group through nutrition stuff right now using these principles. Um, and when it comes to objectives, constraints, uh, I was speaking with one of the owners of the gym that I work at and we were saying, don't be smart as in like the smart goal, be curious. <laughs> so it's like, ah, like don't, right? don't set the objective. Don't be smart. Be curious, learn how to explore and you'll be much more likely to be successful. Yeah. And funny thing is a lot of smart people are extremely curious. <laughs> yeah. So it's like, they didn't go, you know, Oh yeah, I'm going to, you know, create the world's first like computer or, you know, iPhone. Like, no, I'm just going to explore a bunch of random stuff and, Oh, look at this great thing that I was able to create that I had in mind or, these are all the different things that had to be made so I could even make my invention or do my exploration of like whatever it is that I'm exploring in whatever search space I happen to be most interested in. Dude, on that topic, I'm reading Johnny Ivey's biography right now. And the section I read yesterday literally is all about this. And they talk about how they would make an excessive amount of foam models of anything they made. Like Johnny Ivey would make, whereas the average person would make like three models and compare them, he would make 50. He would obsess Mm -hmm. over making tiny little permutations of the same thing, make a shitload of models. And then he just had a way broader base to view, to look at and see what he liked with each one. And then Mm -hmm. a broader base to pick from. And that literally is just applying a novelty search in order to get to a desired destination, which in which case, when you're inventing something, you don't even know what the destination is, right? You just have to explore and see like, I wonder what I'll come up with. Um, yeah, really. So kind of cool that you mentioned Apple because that, that's really all their design team was about initially was like, let's just create the most radical stuff, make models, look at them and have a conversation about which one's the best. And the more you create, the more options you have in your decision yeah. tree. Um, and, and even with politics, it's like, you know, you, you can either pick A or B and there might be like 50 other things that you should be able to choose from, but all you're allowed yeah. to choose from is like shitty or shittier. It's like, why can't we just all <laughs> pick good? Like, yeah. so silly. Uh, um, free energy principle. You want to get into that? Cause that is, this is the dude, this is the one that like, <laughs> it took me a long time to wrap my head around and I still am like tip of the tip of the tip of the iceberg. Yeah, I know. The first time I had heard about this, 
it was listening to the Strongfoot podcast. And then I went and looked up more, more of Carl Friston's work, which for anyone listening, like he's the guy that essentially he's a, he's a leading neuroscientist, neuroimaging um, professional, uh, you know, kind of like one of the absolute most brilliant people probably that's ever lived. And um, the first time I heard it was on the Strongfoot podcast. And I was like, well, that's really crazy. I have to look up more into this. Didn't understand it a bunch, obviously. Then listened to a couple of YouTube videos of Carl Friston had less of an understanding of it. I was like, <laughs> he's like, this idea is only a little bit abstract. And I'm like, Oh, you, really? Okay. Um, so, I mean, it's just been like months and months and months and months and months of trying to learn about it more. But I think a really easy way to talk about it is your life is, and the decisions you make are, are probability based. Your mm-hmm. body is not sitting there waiting to react. And this is based on an idea of, um, you as a living thing need to maintain homeostasis or in a stress response allostasis where you have like your new normal for, for a certain period of time. And the way that you can continue to live is by minimizing uh, free energy, which is the same thing as saying entropy in a system, right? Because mm. max, maximum entropy in a system is the death of a system. Uh, they use the example entropy, of- just a piece in there. Entropy yeah. is disorder, just in case someone yes. doesn't know what entropy is. Yeah, is disorder. And they give the example of a snowflake, right? Like a snowflake cannot control its environment the whole time. So at some point it will melt because it cannot act on the local environment or change the inside, the internal environment um, to be able to sustain its like shape in this case. So for a living organism, it's you are a living thing. There's some space that separates you from everything else. Uh, and, And I like how they say we're kind of always one layer separate from the world. So the reason why your brain is not just waiting and reacting is because, well, we for sure wouldn't have like lasted this long as a species if we were just reacting to everything and be way more likely that we'd be dead. Um, But you're, you're setting these predictions based on external stimuli. And what that means is you're constantly picking up on sensory and stimulation and assessing it and then making predictions about how it's going to make you feel might potentially be, be happening. And the reason why that that is important is because you don't necessarily care about what you're picking up, but you care about how you're going to be able to respond. And then also what is the causal factor of the stimuli that you are picking up, right? Like what is causing me to have this prediction? And so I'm going to set a prediction. And then when I'm able to observe, I want the prediction and the observation to match. And that would minimize free entropy. It also doesn't matter if it's a good or a bad thing. So if my prediction is I'm going to have pain and then the observation is I'm going to have pain, well, obviously that's not great, but like, hey, prediction and observation matched, no increase in free energy. Um, And this would be, and uh, I forget who I heard this from, but it's kind of like, you know, I don't care that I'm hearing a rustling of like sound in the bushes. What I care is, is that wind or is that an animal that's trying to like, you know, be predator on me, which would be prey, right? Like that's what's really important. Um, And so you, there are some like really high level concept terms, like the way that we understand the separation of us is from a Markov blanket. Um, That's still something that I'm personally trying to dive into more, but like the concept, at least initially is easy, easy to understand of, I have internal states. I am separate from external. I need to understand what is causing these external stimuli and pressures, right? What's causing an increase in heat? What's causing an increase uh, of pressure towards me? What's causing me to be reacting in a way that I feel is stressful 
or uh, like calm. And not all of this is always conscious, right? Like some of it is subconscious, like you're not aware of it. Um, and the more likely I am to make prediction observations that match, the less likely I am to have free energy. So then that would be uh, meaning that my system is, is functioning in a more optimal way for longer periods of time. One of the examples I read was based on temperature, right? Well, if I, have a, if I sense a slight increase in temperature, well, there's a big difference between an increase of like 30 degrees suddenly or one degree suddenly. And I need to be able to predict like, well, what is causing that? Am I just near a stove that's going to burn me? Or like, is something happening outside? Like something's on fire and I need to like be able to vacate and find somewhere that's like safe. Um, and I would say like the probability isn't necessarily like, oh, what is the probability of this external thing happening? It's more of like, how how am I going to feel and how can my body prepare and respond? Two easy ways to view this would be um, like the, the Pavlov's uh, like salivation stuff, right? Well, that's a, uh, a um, what is it called? A vagal cephalic response, right? Like your body is predicting through smell, through sight, and then eventually through taste that you're going to be digesting food. So it's preparing you for the digestion piece, right? It wasn't you ate the food, then you got more saliva, then you felt calm, and then you digested it. It's through external stimuli, you predicted the cause of it. You predicted how it would make you feel and what preparation was needed. So you prepared your body to digest. Okay, that's the example there. Another example would be the cephalic um, phase response for insulin, which would be, I see the sweet thing. You know, let's say it's a fruit in this case. I know previous context, right? So I would say this is also context dependent. That's why it's not super deterministic, right? Like it's not just, I ate carbohydrates and they got digested, right? It's like, well, I remember the context of like, this fruit looks this way. This is the color. This is the shape. This is the smell. This is immediately the taste. My body's preparing by uh, preparing to release uh, insulin to be able to handle the rise in blood sugar. And I'm preparing for all of these things. It's not, I ate it. Then I ended up releasing insulin. Then I ended up doing it. So it's very, very much context dependent in that sense. Um, and the great way to see a prediction error, which would be, hey, we've talked about, you know, ways that a person is going to, like, obviously, if I prepare to digest food, I get ready for digestion, and then I eat food that's going to get digested. Well, there's not an error there. But the, the example that I really like to use and that I work with on when I do nutrition with people is you see a cookie, you know, past contents of having a cookie. You know, you're expecting sugar. It's going to be uh, sweet, savory, depending on the flavor that you're going to do. And it's obviously going to cause an increase in, in blood sugar, right? But what if it's a protein cookie, right? Well, mm. that is way different than what my prediction was going to do, right? My prediction was I'm getting ready for this more increase in insulin response, yet I ate something that's like not nearly as easily digestible and does not necessarily cause the same type of insulin response. Well, that's an error. And so the way I like to think about it is, how many prediction errors are happening throughout your day? Because then you have to try there. And then there's different ways, either through active or perceptive uh, inferencing, which we can talk about in a second of like, how do you correct your errors? Um, which uh, a type of corrective uh, or prediction error correction can lead to a lot of different um, like bad food habits that we have. But if I eat that cookie and I get this insulin response and it's like, well, I didn't need it. Now I have elevated insulin levels and I didn't need it. So my body's going to be like, well, I don't know what's going on. Or maybe I have the non-calorie sweetener, same thing, no calories yet. It's sweet. What happened? So what I've seen with people is usually the more, the more often someone has foods that are processed and like, Hey, it's extra fortified with protein, even though it doesn't taste like protein at all and things like that. 
their body has no idea how to get the energy it needs. So it just jacks up cravings, right? It goes, well, I don't know how to get actual carbs. I don't know how to get actual fats or actual protein. So I'm just going to make you crave a bunch of food and hope that I get it. Right. Mm. Um, and so we see those errors start to happen. So I can either change my prediction. I can, or I can, in a broad sense, act on my environment to, uh, change it to match my prediction. So, um, the example would be like, let's say we're going with um, the cookie again, example, right? I can either change my prediction that that cookie will not be something that stimulates an insulin response, which is really not the easiest thing to do, or in the sense of like, because this obviously applies outside of nutrition. Let's say you're doing work, you're writing emails and you feel bored, right? Well, it's kind of hard for me to change the prediction of this is no longer something that makes me feel bored, right? I'm essentially asking you to change your sense of self and how you feel about it which is why that first prediction is so hard because you're trying to get yourself to change how you feel and what you expect to feel. And that is literally asking you to like change who like you, you know, in quotations, like how, who you are. Right. Um, the second way that you can change it is, and I like to think of this as one thing that's split up into two ways. So we could say, maybe this is like three ways of, of changing a prediction, but you can act on your environment. So again, let's go in with the uh, board example. So I'm bored. Well, I can, May, I can change my body to search for that specific feeling that I want to have to then make the prediction, right? So um, if I want to be more excited in a situation, or we'll say more like sympathetic, if we're talking about the nervous system, why well, can change my movement and what I'm doing in a way to stimulate that response? I like to think of this as play, right? Like, hey, I my prediction is that I should feel more excited during this. If that's not happening, there's an error. Well, maybe if I add in play, I'm changing the way I'm moving my body to match it. Um, movement is really easy in this case, right? Like uh, in the Strong Fit podcast, they talk about like someone doing an Olympic lift, a snatch. Well, if it doesn't feel right, that's not great, right? You're expecting the snatch to feel a certain way, but instead, ah, that hurt my shoulder. Well, prediction and observation didn't match. So I can instead act on the environment and make my body move in a certain way to find that perfect feeling of what a perfect lift feels like, like Oh, and now that matches my prediction of what I've expected the snatch to feel like. So that's that second way that we can act on our environment, um, a little bit more of that active inference to change my prediction and to, again, minimize it, right? And then the third way is going to be, I essentially change how I'm sampling the environment, um, which in most cases, if we're going with food, I am bored. I want to feel more awake. So I eat something that makes me feel more awake or I get on my phone that stimulates a stress response that makes me feel more uh, like, like I'm enjoying what I'm doing, right? So I'm mm -hmm. bored, I'm working on emails. So now I have some candy, which makes me feel more good. It makes me feel more awake. And then I can dive back into my work stuff. And I've masked the feeling of, you know, feeling like crappy and the fact that I hate what I'm doing with food or, you know, I mask my boredom with, going on to my phone and scrolling through Instagram, right? Because like boredom in this case wouldn't be a bad thing. It's just a function that guides your mind to re-engage with your environment. But instead of you taking an action to engage with your environment, you're instead relying on a fix to force you into matching with that environment, right? So this is where we see people with different types of food behavior associations. Well, if every time I'm bored, I eat candy and go on Instagram, well, that's an increase in free energy and I'm, and I'm not necessarily fixing the prediction error in the best way because it's not just about the prediction error, but how you might go about fixing it. So now all of a sudden, if every time I'm bored or upset, I eat candy and scroll on Instagram, I'm probably not going to be the most healthy individual, right? Um, yeah, and that's probably the basis for a lot of addictive uh, physiological tendencies. It's like, yeah. 
you know, we talked about at the start how a lot of um, decisions are on autopilot. Well, if you make that decision enough times, if you run through um, that policy of, okay, I have this situation, I'm bored, my best decision, or this one worked last time, I consumed candy and all of a sudden, or went on Instagram and it helped me not be bored. If that was a, an opto, if you felt that was an optimal solution or a viable solution, or if that's the only solution you've explored, right back yep. to like you're exploiting previous decisions yep. instead of exploring, you know, like what other solutions can I have to boredom, then essentially that gets put on autopilot. And that's where, you know, mm-hmm. addiction is just like, it doesn't even feel like a choice because your body's just doing it's, you know, habits and repeated behaviors. Habits are just solutions to problems that you face on a repeated basis. And if you re- mm-hmm. face the, re- the problem of boredom on a repeated basis and your best current choice in your decision tree is to eat candy or go on Instagram or, or some other thing, yeah. um, then that's, that's the route you go. And, you know, one thing that I brought one thing that came to mind when you were talking there is like, okay, and let me know what you think of this. If a Markov yeah. blanket is this, the distinction between inner and outer, between self yeah. and external world, um, then when you have a, an incongruency that comes up, um, you essentially have, are, are faced with a choice, right? Like when you have, um, when your prediction doesn't match reality, you have a choice. You can either choose to change um, inside of the Markov blanket, like mm-hmm. that realm, the inner self, like how, how you feel or how you're acting, or you have a choice to change the external world. And obviously mm-hmm. that, that might not even be binary because you can probably do a bit of both, but I think it's probably just easier from a, from a conceptual framework to think, okay, you can either change inner or outer. Yeah. And if you don't explore ways that you can, different ways that you can change either of those things, then you have no data set to work off of in terms of the best way to solve that incongruency. Um, And yeah, that's very like, yeah. So I was reading, I read about free, free, the free energy principle last night and my brain started to go to mush. So I started again this morning, but my best crack at it is that, you know, I, I, I really feel that some of the I try and think from a first principles perspective when it comes to health, because health can be this very nebulous, busy thing. But when I look at it, you know, two of the first principles I use is that the body is a self-organizing system and a self-healing system. And to me, both of those principles are actually derivatives of the free energy principle, where we're trying to reduce the amount of free energy, right? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, a, a living system, an organizing principle for any living system really is the free energy principle where, you know, and one thing that I read was that, you know, living systems remain in a non-equilibrium steady state. And that kind of messed with my brain. Like I had to sit with that on a walk for a bit. So I was like, okay, I'm going to have to unpack that. But basically yeah. it says that we're not static, but right. we are in a steady state of being non-static. That was the conclusion <laughs> I came to, which was like, okay, that's actually way simpler when you really put thought energy into it, because it, all it's saying a non-equilibrium steady state really means that we are not static and we are always not static. And so the way to incorporate the free energy principle is that when you are not static, you're always seeking to minimize free energy, right? Yes. And, and that really just means minimizing the delta, like minimizing the difference between your model of the world and your perception of it. And yes. all you're doing is continuous correction of your world model every time an incongruency arises. And that's kind of the Bayesian inference is like, I update my understanding of the world as information that is incongruent with my current understanding comes up in my reality. Yes. And that is such a profound, like, it's actually not that complex when you really dive into it, but like, that's yeah. a really profound way of 
understanding how we get to the model, the worldviews that we get to is really based on our historical perspective and our ability to like engage with an actual process of solving those, those incongruencies. Right. And like you said, you can go down one route or another. I can either change myself or I can change the world. And I think the easier route is to change the world. Mm-hmm. candy and go on Instagram. Whereas the harder route, the one that requires, and like when I was thinking of what you were saying, I was like, according to the free energy principle and the conservation of energy, it is actually easier in the short term to yeah. do the candy and Instagram, which mm-hmm. aligns with our evolutionary drive to reduce, uh, to conserve energy. Yes. But we are not, which kind of goes to prove that like, we are not designed to have Instagram and candy. No. <laughs> right? And like, that's the fundamental problem. Like we live in, we live in this alien world that mm-hmm. is completely incongruent to our biology. Therefore, there is a whole different set of incongruencies and possible solutions to problems that we are not designed to deal with. And so we have to like literally understand them in order to mm-hmm. wrap around our evolutionary um, essentially drives that are hardwired in order to take a more rational approach, knowing that there's a new landscape now. And like, that's some shit right there. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. And, and I think um, kind of touching on kind of like what the, the Bayesian inference is, because I, I know we've said it a couple of times. So for anyone like listening, so I want to like link that to kind of like what you're talking about with like maintaining balance and, and how this kind of essentially always leads back to this like novelty search. Um, but then also kind of like, well, Hey, what ends up happening with homeostasis. So the that Bayesian inference is essentially you have prior knowledge, you have the likelihood of something, and then we're trying to figure out what the posterior probability is of something happening. And that's essentially my trying to describe it, you know, super complex math stuff, even though I, I'm not someone that, you know, is, <laughs> is very well versed in, very well versed in math. Um, that's essentially the equation of what our body is constantly doing. And that helps us maintain, like you said, like the homeostasis and how um, and, and allostasis and how we're kind of constantly changing, but trying to minimize and, and how we're in an alien world. Um, and I think that this would be a really cool time to bring up how, well, like what essentially helps us monitor homeostasis and improve it, um, right? Because that's kind of like, well, how does that actually happen? And how does this relate to exploring my health? Um, there's actually and maybe really maybe cool- define homeostasis just so that people yeah. have some context there. Yeah. So when we're talking about homeostasis or allostasis, it's like the uh, more towards the balance of a system. And if we're linking it to to free energy, it's like the more you minimize uh, randomness or chaos or free entropy or or whatever we end up calling it, the more balance you have within a system. So it's not on either end of an extreme. Mm. So your system can be functioning optimally, right? And then an allostatic uh, change is going to be like, hey, I have this new stressor. So I have that, I'm essentially moving my center of homeostasis off of my original center a little bit and then being able to return to it, um, right? So we'd want to essentially minimize allostatic load over time as well. Because if I'm constantly maintaining a super high new homeostasis that isn't really it, well, then I'm I'm not really probably doing myself any favors for maintaining health um, in certain degrees. So homeostasis essentially is that like balance so that we can function optimally. And what is a huge factor in homeostasis is interoception. And some of that is conscious, some of that is unconscious. And um, the reason why I think this relates back to novelty search so well and some of the problems that we see in the health and fitness industry is because a lot of things go based on the objective route or our environment puts us on like not being aware of what we feel, right? Like we're on the, the infinity feed on Instagram or Facebook. And so we're not paying attention to things like sense of smell, taste, uh, our heartbeat, 
what our thought patterns are actually like. Like we're kind of like lost in the experience breath. Um, what my stomach feels like, what my skin is, is feeling right. Like not only proprioception of where I am, but also touch. Um, and there's a mix of like internal interception and then extraception. Um, and so in one of the books I'm reading, they actually, they, they just prefer to call it, um, somatovisceral, uh, like stimuli, right? So it's like involving, uh, somatic sensory stuff, which is like my bones, my muscles, external stimuli plus visceral sensations, which is like, I can feel my heartbeat without checking my pulse. Or I am aware of my breathing, like while I'm doing an activity, or I'm aware of like what I feel in my stomach or in my gut, which I think this, this is cool. Cause you know, it relates back to like, Oh, well, your gut feeling actually does like mean something. Right. Mm. So essentially the, when people have a greater introceptive awareness, those things are a huge um, factor in helping a person uh, maintain homeostasis, right? Like the less aware they are of those things. And then even on a subconscious level, if we're changing things without realizing it, that is affecting homeostasis. And because of the parts of the brain that pick this up and again, because the free energy principle is associating the brain and the nervous system in this case, you're not only more likely to increase free energy, but you're also more likely to negatively impact your sense of self because uh, the uh, insular cortex in the brain that monitors things like blood pressure, uh, like that would be an interceptive feeling, like being able to feel like your heart's pounding or it's not pounding. And then I'm feeling my heartbeat, the assessment of, or the processing of neural inputs from the heart to the brain, like those provide through the research, right? the foundational sense of self of a person. So the more introceptive awareness a person has, you can say the more like they understand their like sense of self, which also improves their ability to maintain homeostasis. When it comes to things like emotions, they found that actually people that have greater introceptive awareness, not only have more intense emotions, but are also better at regulating their emotions, which again relates to sense of self. If we're talking about things like self-esteem, self, um, self-efficacy. And then I'm forgetting the third version of this. It's I'm going to call it self-determinism, which is abil your ability to, because we're talking about decision-making, right? Your ability to monitor, regulate, and change behaviors and decisions to reach a goal, right? Mm. So it's interesting how it all interconnects. And they actually find like, for example, in people that are on uh, ends of uh, eating disorders, such as either obesity or something more restrictive, their sense of self is less. They're not aware of their heartbeat. They're not aware of like viscerally what they feel necessarily. Uh, they are setting, they're making more of like a target and a measure, a target, which is now making it an objective to be achieved, right? Lose this weight, gain this weight. And they're taking away from their sense of self. And they're saying, I'm only valued at this number that I've thrown out there, which might not even be the right measure, right? Like what right. if that weight for you is not actually a good weight? And again, how you go about doing it. So I love how the free energy principle and this idea of interoception and interoception and maintaining homeostasis blends together with, it, it essentially gives you the power and the awareness, like you were saying, like you can't change what you're not aware of. So this is making you aware of how your body makes decisions, how it's probability based, how it not only is trying to literally minimize free energy to maintain homeostasis and minimize surprise, um, but it's also helping you develop better senses of self, which are also associated with decision-making on a cognitive level. And there's such a complex, but really cool and fascinating interaction there. Because if all of a sudden I decide to, let's say, follow this quick fix eight week program to like, you know, lose, or lose fat and build muscle. Well, how I go about that matters, what metrics are involved matter. But then also again, like, am I creating 
surprises when I go through it, which right again, the surprise would be the prediction and observation do not match. And that's why, again, that first variation of prediction um, or, or error modification is so difficult because you're asking them to change their sense of self. Like one of the articles um, that we had talked a little bit about was the um, sense of self coming from part, part of the monitoring of the heart. Well, if mm. you slam coffee all the time because you want to feel more awake and you set feeling more awake as an objective, yeah. you're literally changing your sense of self. And so like I've had it before where I work with people and I'm like, let's, let's make some adjustments to a uh, coffee, right? In my head, I'm like, we're going to minimize surprises. We're going to connect with our heartbeat. We're going to develop a, sen- a better sense of self. We're going to be aware of interception because that's important with homeostasis. You can actually feel, does this thing I'm eating or doing make me feel good, bad, or indifferent? And then it's like, when you ask them to, you know, change the type of carbs they're having or change the coffee, they're like, how dare you? I feel personally attacked, right? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> like, there's no way I could do that. Um, yeah. And so that's like, that just shows an example of like, here's all this complex stuff, but presented in like a real life scenario. Um, and it's like that development of exploration, like this would have never happened if someone didn't explore, like what they felt when they felt it, why they felt it, what thoughts are associated with it. And then understanding these fundamental principles that that lay beneath it, that are like the underpinning of it c- can empower someone, I think so much. Yeah, I agree with so much there. And, you know, one thing that it made me think of was this notion that, okay, the body has this language that we are literally comes to us naturally when we're born. And it's, it's, it's the way that our body communicates with, um, with us, which sounds weird, because we like, it's all one system, but your heart rate tells you something. It is a piece of information. Let's call it a hint. And people have become illiterate in the language of these hints. And so, you know, what I was thinking of as we were talking, I'm like, okay, novelty search is a way to gather information, right? It's a way to map the environment. But if, if the way that you're mapping, let's say a novelty search would be, I'm going to try a bunch of different foods and I'm going to see which, how they make me feel. If the feedback loop required to make sense of a novelty search to distinguish it from random versus novelty search, which novelty search is essentially making sense and mapping it out. Random is just essentially entropy. Um, if you cannot speak the language of the body and actually receive those hints, that is a precursor to be able to do a novelty search. Because if you're not doing that, all you're doing is random and you're actually adding entropy to the system. And, you know, back when you were saying, okay, I'm bored, therefore I can either like sit with that boredom. Like I could, one option is change the self, meditate for five minutes, take a couple deep breaths, make sense of the boredom, think of it. And that is a reduction of free energy because you're actually reducing the entropy of the system by allowing it to kind of compute things. Yep. The other path of Instagram and sugar um, is adding free energy, is, is increasing entropy. And if the body is always um, trying to follow the path based on the free energy principle of reducing the amount of free energy, um, then it, it's energy intensive to reduce entropy. And so it, it's just this thing where like, this whole thing of everyone being tired all the time. I was in the grocery store the other day and I was walking around and the amount of people I saw yawning, the amount of people I saw that just looked like they were lethargic as shit. I'm yeah. like, people don't, people are seeking fixes to this energy problem, right? There's this, there's this incongruency. I want to feel more energetic and yet I am lethargic like a slug. The solution to that problem a lot of times is like coffee, candy, short-term fixes, Yep. But all those are doing is adding more entropy to the system, forcing the body system to increase its energy expenditure to reduce the entropy, yep. making you even more tired. And it's like, 
oh, dude, it's so, it's so crazy to have conversations with people where they, they say something and then it gets you on this tangent and you're trying to yeah. listen and then you're trying to think of the tangent. You're like, but, but it just made me think of that. It's like, we need to just think in terms of helping people have a broader template for ways for options, right? Like mm-hmm. without even saying the word Markov blanket, you should be able to say, well, okay, if you have this, like, can you feel this? Yeah. No, I can't feel this. How do we get you to tune into that? Well, if we reduce the noise, the signal has more space to get through. And so, you know, I really think that one of the heuristics I use is that health is by subtraction, right? It's not by telling people more things to do or try and be mindful of. It's reduce the things that are blocking you from feeling what's actually happening all the time, yeah. but you're not paying attention to. Um, and it's, it's like this, it's basically like salmon swimming upstream because the amount of things that are vying for our attention are, and are convenient to distract us from the di- yeah. short-term discomfort, which we are all going to face regularly, um, is a really big competitor to health. And so like we, we just, the environment is disease centric. And like, I think cleaning up the environment or helping people understand how to clean up their immediate environment, right? Because you're not going to change the, the world overnight, but someone can change their immediate world, which is like their house, their bedroom, their office. Um, and I really think that by giving directives of experiments people can do of, of changing their environment, Mm-hmm. Uh, allows them to take the path of least resistance to even like let the signal get through to increase their literacy. And yeah, it's just like, yeah, health is, uh, it's crazy how deep health can be, but also how simple health can be. <laughs> right. It's like, man. And I mean, talking a little bit about like when you were saying, Hey, people are tired and we're talking about changing the environment. And it's like, um, we're, we're asking them to, to essentially at some point, do that first prediction error correction, which is changing your changing your prediction, which is your sense of self. Right. Um, and so it's not, it's, it's easy to, when you feel tired, take carbs because they make you feel better. Right. Yeah. It's not easy to identify, well, what is the source that, that my boredom might be coming from? Right. Like, am I not moving my body because I hate moving and maybe I'm scared to go work out because I don't like the way I look or mm. I, uh, and bored at work. And it's not just that I don't like doing emails. It's because I hate my job and I want to feel better. So I'm going to take a bunch of stimulants to make me feel better. Yeah. Right. Like it, it forces people to get really uncomfortable. And if we're taking the mindfulness route, right. Like we're kind of attacking the ego here. Um, yeah. you gotta sit with the discomfort. Them- you're asking people to sit with this, your endure yes. the suck for a certain period of time so that you can at least get some information from it. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, Hey, the person you are right now, if you want to be healthier, will you need to change the prediction, which is kill who you are right now? Cause you need to be yeah. someone different because yeah. the different you is not, it's not the you that you are now it's, it's the healthier or at least the, the healthier you that you want to be. Um, and so it just ends up being like this difficult thing. Right. And then we're talking about, well, how do we end up doing that? We're like mindfulness practice, changing your environment, um, things like that. One of the things that, again, like StrongFit talks about that's really cool is it's kind of like your environment dictates your behavior, which dictates your identity, right? Mm. So one of the great things that I loved when I was initially, for example, going like how I was able to do my, what I consider my prediction observation versus first error change um, was like going through the foot nerd program, which was like, got rid of my couch, started sitting only on the floor, right? We started doing everything barefoot, Um, and I was like changing my fundamental beliefs so that the way that I sampled the environment unintentionally, right. But the way that I sampled in the environment started changing and caused Mm -hmm. me to explore more. Um, 
right? Like I didn't, I didn't start the, the foot nerd program and go, oh, you know what? I'm going to end up learning about interoception and the free energy principle. And I'm going to end up teaching people how to like do better. It's like, no, I just ended up, it led me on an exploration journey, which forced me to change who I was because I was constantly taking in new information, assessing it and trying it out with constraints, which fundamentally changed who I was as a person because I couldn't know the stuff I had now because I had more dogmatic views on fitness and nutrition. And now because the way that I, that I fundamentally sample information is different, I am now a different person. And then, right. So like that has essentially kind of like reduced free energy. Um, it's almost like, uh, I also like to think like, uh, you become more aware of like potential cognitive dissonance where you like have two really conflicting things that you kind of both like believe in the free energy principle and the way that you explore minimizes that like extreme, uh, discomfort of like, well, I kind of agree with this, but then here's this thing that's almost totally the opposite that I also agree with, or I do um, kind of like, Hey, I want to be, I want to be healthy, but I'm so obsessive about my health that I'm actually unhealthy. Right. Well, it's like, well, that's, that's quite a, th- those are two things that are totally the opposite yet are happening together at the same time from the same actions. Um, and there's a, there's a moment there of anxiety, right? Like, like this, oh, yeah. these surprises, um, I mean, surprise has like, oh, surprise, <laughs> you know, has yeah. a good notion to it. But like most of the time, surprises are like, oh, shit. Or like, oh, I feel really weird and I'm anxious. <clears throat> That's really what surprises usually manifest as. And I think, you know, when you get a surprise, like people should treat surprise or anxiety as a signal to explore. Because yeah. if you're like, okay, I want to be healthy. And yet I'm obsessing over it so much that I'm, I know I'm damaging my health. Well, there's some exploration needed to be done to see like, well, which of like, where does the change need to happen? And mm-hmm. so, you know, if, if people just explored, whether it's exploring their own mind by sitting down for a couple of minutes and just like limiting distractions and just sitting with it or mm-hmm. exploring, like doing a bit more research to get a better basis of understanding to guide, which is a, you know, a form of play, um, you know, and people are uncomfortable, not like I, I just went through this. So we had a, uh, a lady that works at a school and she just started on a beam. And so she emailed me, she's like, I want beams for my students because they're at home and I'm loving this and I want my students together. So she did like an order for her class of beams. And then I was like, all right, well, any school that orders a certain amount of beams, I'm just going to put myself out there and be available to be like, if you want help or of understanding like how to implement this, or you want my take on this, then I'm here um, as a thanks for supporting us. And I got a bunch of emails and she was like, well, what do I do? Like what, what movements do I give my kids? How many movements do I give them? What specific ones do I start with? And I emailed her back to like a very simple line. I said, this is all you need to do. Give them two rules. Don't look down, don't fall off. And that's all I said. And so really, it was just constraints. And I was like, you know what? The weirder shit they do, as long as they're abiding by those two rules, the better, because you have to let them explore what actually, what they actually want to do. Because the more shit you tell them to do, the less likely they are going to be to want to do it. And if they don't get it, they feel like they're failing. It's like, there's no wrong way of doing it. And the beam is just the ultimate simple constraint. Stand on something that narrows your base of support. um, And there's no wrong way of doing it. And if you want systematic challenges to really have like some sort of template of exploring, right? It's like, okay, that's where you want to get to. It's a place that I don't even know because I don't know what you want to get to. But you want to have better balance, let's say. That's the aspiration. The goal with like Beam Tribe or Beam in this game we're going to come out with is like create a template of options. It's like a treasure map where the treasure, we don't know where the treasure is. We don't even know what path you should take, but here are paths that people have taken in the past and things that you can explore. Find your own route. 
And it's just funny how like I got so many, I, we got a lot of emails and until I literally just sent like a couple sentences of the basic constraint, she was like, well, what, like basically she was saying, what's the objective? What's the objective? What's the objective? Yeah. And I was like, these are the two constraints. That is all. There <laughs> isn't so, an objective. And eventually she got it. She was like, oh, okay. So there really is. Okay. I get it. And I think she was <laughs> like relieved almost, but that's an example of how like we've been given so many objective based uh, systems in our life, especially in the fitness world, that yeah. it's uncomfortable to be given simple constraints because it seems almost too simple to actually have a result. Yeah. And, and I think that was also an indicator of the lack of literacy in the world of play where like, it's okay to play. Play can get Absolutely. you to where you want to go. In fact, it's actually a superpower to get there, but you have to, you have to know that like, no one's going to give you the answers. You have to learn. And that's really what play is, is like self-directed exploratory learning. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's so like school is the exact opposite of that, right? Yeah. And maybe this is a good place to talk about, um, you know, even Goodhart's law, where when a measure becomes a target, it ceases to be a good measure. And like, yep. like if all you're doing, if the only metric you're using to indicate whether someone's learning something is an exam score, well, that just gets gamed because then mm-hmm. all you're doing is creating people that are really good at taking exams and it becomes a zero uh, becomes basically a moot indicator of learning because people are just gamifying the system to get good at taking exams. They're no longer, the target isn't learning. The target is yeah. get good at exams. And so, yeah. And then, and then Campbell's law, you want to unpack Campbell's law? Cause I think it's a similar one. But, yeah. It's, it's, yeah. um, they're both like very similar. Uh, uh, Campbell is, I think his name's Donald T Campbell. He was like a social psychologist. Um, but it essentially boils down to when you take like a social, uh, a social metric and then, and then apply pressure to it, you essentially make it almost like a pervasive incentive. I think I might be describing that right. The, the example that, that perverse, I got from it, perverse incentive. perverse incentive, that's what I meant. Perverse incentive, uh, which essentially says, Hey, when you, uh, like Campbell and Goodhart's law, kind of like same, same, but slightly different when you same do with, same with things, Cobra, cause Campbell's law is an application right. of Cobra effect, isn't it? Right. Well, yeah. So I was going to say those lead to the Cobra effect, which like for those who don't know the Cobra effect, um, Delhi and India, when it was under like British colonial rule, there was like over a population of Cobras and the British government was like, if you bring us dead Cobras, we're going to give you money. So, well, that sounds great. Right. I had a measure snake population. I made it a target to be achieved less and I put an incentive on it. I'll give you money. And so people start because they're smart and they gained the system, started farming Cobras (laughs) get way more money. And then when the government found out about it, they were like, we're not paying for Cobras anymore. And so the people were like, fine, I don't need them. I'm going to release them. And so the population increased. Um, and so again, right. I took something and I made it an objective. I went, here's my smart goal. Yep. Not a great way to go about it. So an example of like how this might relate to um, fitness, right. Cause I see all the time people falling into, you know, whichever variation of the law we want to say, Goodhart or Campbell's law. And this idea of the Cobra effect, um, because we take something that's just a metric that is kind of related to health and we say that is better health. Here's the incentive, right? And sometimes the incentive isn't always a financial one. Um, I like to think of it as the incentive is going to be linked to the social value and status that the person thinks that they will achieve if they get it. And then also what they set a high value on social wise. So for example, if I say, I want to be someone that's thin, right? I'm again, I'm talking about my sense of self. I want to be a thin person. Um, I've now said, 
the I've taken health and I've made it an objective of be this body weight. Um, right. And so I'm obviously going to do maybe not great things with just exploitation and not exploration. Um, but I'm also going to end up gaming the system, right. Good hearts all. And I'm going to create a Cobra effect because I have a high incentive to try and achieve thinness where I'm not focusing on what I actually feel, right. I'm not picking up on interoception and because I set such a high value on thinness, because maybe I admire people I follow on Instagram that are thin, maybe some of like the, the Fitspo people that I follow are all talking about certain types of diets that are extremely restrictive and unhealthy, but like, hey, you're going to be thin and you just need to do these like super intense hit style classes, which again, that's, that's fine and of its own right, but like, but you're going to do them like fasted and it's going to be like just water. And now you're going to do this detox. And now I'm spending money on things that aren't going to work my incentive is extremely high because I think that I've, I've said that if I achieve this weight, I am going to feel better, be more confident in myself, which obviously someone like, that's not a bad thing if someone wants to feel better, look better, be confident in their body and in their mindset, but how you go about it ends up being so important. So I took something that's just a measure weight. I made it a target based on social values that I have. Again, linking this back to decision-making. If you're not aware of what your social values are, that's probably not a good thing. So I have, high, I have a high value on being thin. I admire and follow people that are thin. So now everything I see on Instagram is promoting me into this silo, into this rabbit hole of BS that isn't correct. And then I am now, not only the information am I getting when I take action prevents me from paying attention to what I feel, but also the act of how I get the information takes away from how I feel because I'm doing an infinity scroll. Um, and I become extremely closed-minded because everything that I'm getting through the thing that disconnects me from the people that disconnect me is also based on exploitation and not exploration. So literally everything you're doing is actually working against your health. And again, taking this back to your health is complex. It doesn't mean you can't be response able. Um, it just means that your health is going to be deceptive and you have to explore because you think, and again, not to the fault of the individual necessarily, but you think every decision you're making is a good one, but you're not paying attention to how you feel. You're not exploring. You're essentially figuring out how can I Google the answer more without actually doing any work. Right. And I'm not paying attention to at all how I feel, at all how I'm doing it. I'm just checking the box off that I did it and expecting my life to be better. And it's kind of like this like convenience store approach to improving your health. And it's like, hey, improving your health should be hard. It should definitely not be easy, but right. that's okay, Right. There's a difference between it being challenging and you continually feel better and it being a little bit challenging or easy and you continually feeling worse, right? Or yo-yoing in the decisions that you make. Like I'm exercising, now I'm not exercising. I'm a healthy weight, right? Healthy in quote marks. I'm a healthy weight, I'm an unhealthy weight. I'm gonna yo-yo all around in my decisions and in my body weight. And it just ends up being this terrible thing. Again, we created a pervasive incentive because I place such a high value on a number or achieving a certain thing and I've linked it to this social um, like status that I want to have or what I want to think about myself because it will impact my sense of self. And now I made all these terrible decisions based on optimization and objectives because that's everything I've learned since I was, you know, hey, set a smart goal, break it down into smaller goals and, you know, follow along this. And I have to tell you everything to do. Otherwise, you won't know how to do it. It's like, no, like to your point, you have to play more. It should be uh, meaningful. You should be actively engaged. It should involve other people. Joy should be present. It should be challenging. There should be risk, but people don't, they don't want to do those things because they're going to end up having a fear of loss and a fear of punishment, right? Because it's like, well, if I can't achieve being thin, 
people might hate me and I might hate myself and I failed. So now I'm not going to be able to do anything. So now there's this huge pressure of, well, if I lose, I'm, I'm kind of losing more than just my weight. I'm losing a lot more than that. And when people aren't aware of that, it ends up creating such a mix of, I can't tell how I feel. There's a bunch of prediction errors. I have no idea what's going on. I think I'm making the right decision, but why can't I actually improve my health? And then it's no wonder that people are anxious or depressed uh, or upset or spending money on things that don't work and then wondering why and what's going on. Um, or become and same apathetic. Th- they're just like, I can't do it. I can't yeah, do they're it. They're like, I, I can't do it, right? Like the only way to be like, it's again, like, and that leads to a deterministic mindset. It's normal to get old and age and need medication, probably get a right. surgery and be overweight and like to have aches and pains every day that I move. It's like, no, that's total, right? You're, we're, we're to change your sense of self through this exploration, which changes yeah. how you sample information, which changes who you are, which is not someone that is deterministic and I'm just going to get unhealthy over time. Yeah, I, that should almost be a shirt. If it was easy to improve your health, you probably didn't do it right, nor did you probably yeah. improve your health. <laughs> right, yeah. And it's like, Ugh. it's funny how when you look at these laws, uh, you know, Goodhart's Campbell, Cobra Effect, the amount of parallel, you know, there's a reason they're called laws, because like when you really understand something at a macro level, you're like, shit, I see that there. Oh, I see it there yeah. too. I see it there. And like, you know, as we were talking about these perverse incentives, I just kind of thought of like, you know, when, when I used to be practicing physio, um, the entire game theory around rehab, the world of rehab yeah. is essentially the Cobra effect, right? Oh it's a, it, it is a system of wonderfully crafted perverse incentives because it's like, if I get paid to see you and you only see me when something hurts, then I want to make it hurt a bit less, but I don't want to make the hurt go away. Yep. And it's not like physios are trying to not make the hurt go away. There's just zero incentive to explore and play with how to find the solution of making it going away for good. Because not only is that not profitable, right? Although I don't think that's the primary factor. There's just no incentive to actually be good at helping people with their health. There's an incentive yeah. to be someone who sees people on a repeat basis to give short-term fixes um, without getting rid of the source problem. And like the Cobra effect of engineering our entire health, quote unquote, healthcare economy around managing and treating symptoms is that we create a world that is full of symptoms and mm-hmm. empty of health. And, you know, like, you know, one thing I want to talk to Julian about is like, how do we design like, okay, we become a world country where there's no countries, there's just a world. The leader of that world that was elected comes to you and says, how do we create a system that makes people healthy? That's a really heavy question, but uh, I also think it can be answered in a way where like you start at like 50,000 miles and say like, well, fundamentally, these are the first principles that we need to base everything off of. And I'm really curious to see what he says, because he's just like a, a wizard in a complex system. So I'm yeah. excited for that one. But, but it really does bring up the fact that like a lot of these problems that we see with health, a lot of the fundamental issues with the health problem, let's call it, which includes like the fitness problem and the disease problem, and all that kind of stuff, is really the fact that we're not empowering people with understanding enough yep. and and uh encouraging them to do enough play like by giving them answers we're actually stifling their health this is mm-hmm. like this fundamental problem and you know the shitty thing is if you don't give someone answers this is, they're often going to go to find someone who claims to give them the answers until yeah. they hit the wall and they're like well none of these are working so maybe i should go back to the person that didn't give me the answers because maybe you know they seem pretty healthy and this is like this fundamental thing where it's like 
Go see healthy people to work on your health, not people with degrees. I'm not saying there's not people with degrees that aren't healthy, but like we need to prioritize a sequence, right? Instead of, because yeah. people are going to where the degrees are, not where the help is. And it's like to, part of that system needs to match people who need help with people who can help. And right now, the people who can help are not the people who hold p- expenses of pieces of paper necessarily. They are the people who are actually doing the thing and taking the perspective that's guiding them along the right path towards, you know, maybe some fundamental definition of health, which is very broad, but like, I think that could be established. So I think this, when you get down to the nitty gritty stuff of like decision-making health really boils down to decision-making, right? Your health is the accumulation of the behavior decisions that you make. And if you're not paying attention to how are those decisions being made? What data am I using to make those decisions? How am I exploring what decisions are available to me? And if you're not even exploring and if you're not even getting the right, you know, that whole, I think my biggest insight from this whole thing was that for something to be a novelty search and not random, for something to reduce free energy and not increase it requires mm-hmm. you to get the right signals from your body. And if you're illiterate yeah. to those hints, you cannot succeed. That's almost like, that's a really fundamental thing that I never realized how fundamental it was, but I think that that's huge. And that's not an easy thing to do, right? Like saying, yeah, why don't you tune into your feelings, emotions, heartbeat, you know, <laughs> sweating. It's like, people and and i think the bottleneck to that is reduce the noise help them change yeah. the environment reduce the noise and i think that's why for me meditation is like the biggest keystone habit because i think that gives me the opportunity to reduce the noise and it's almost like a session it's like a learning session of learning a new language every day i do mm-hmm. in the morning of learning the language of my body of like what's going on upstairs what's going on in my body can i feel all the different subtle things that i couldn't feel before um And one thing I've noticed is that I feel I'm tuning into, it's funny because once you start to feel information, I feel like my brain is allocating more information to feeling those things. Because now when I, when I eat food, I know exactly, sometimes I'll eat really shitty food, just like, well, it tastes delicious. Let's be real. Um, But, but I will almost like go the extreme route where like, I will eat the most whole nutrient dense food for two days straight and really zone in on like, how do I feel? How's my sleep? How are my movement sessions? How's my mind? If I read a really deep, like neuroscience article, can I actually wrap my head around it? And like, it's so obvious now, whereas before it was just like a crapshoot, right? It was, it was random before. Now it's a novelty search because I can actually listen to the hints of the body. And it's so obvious when I eat shitty foods now that I often don't even do it. I don't even do that experiment because I'm like, I already know with a high degree of certainty that shitty things are going to happen if I do this five minutes of mouth pleasure. And so I think when people are encouraged to feel that themselves and prove to themselves and really truly feel it, embody it, then it's like, they don't have to be taught anything. They're learning themselves. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've, I think that that approach is great. And especially cause it's like, it takes away from the fear of like falling off the wagon. Right. When we're talking about food or mm-hmm. trying something new, cause it's like, yep. Well, yeah, it like, first of all, it's totally fine. You're out there and the, shame. And the weird sense and, of and shame, shame people yeah. get, right? Like you can have beer and pizza and feel totally like shit. And that's okay. Cause you know exactly how it made you feel. So right. it's not like you didn't fall off the wagon all of a sudden. Um, and when you have this greater clarity, you're not going to be so susceptible to the cravings that you feel because the rewards you associate with feeling good end up outweighing the rewards of just that immediate pleasure, right? Like where um, this is a thing in behavioral called like delay discounting, right? Where you discount the delayed reward. So essentially if someone delay discounts more, meaning they 
uh, have not as great self-control. They discount the reward of eating healthy and feeling good long-term. So they immediately take the short-term reward of satisfying themselves, right? People can easily fall into a rabbit hole there where they feel like they're powerless. They overcome, they feel uh, overwhelmed with the cravings that they feel and they just eat bad and they can't make any decisions. But there's also, you know, you don't want to go to the other extreme of you're so good at delaying immediate reward that you essentially starve yourself for the long-term benefit of like what you think is, is healthy. So there's like a healthy balance essentially that we're talking about where it's like, yeah, you can eat healthy. You can also go out and eat whatever the hell you want and you're going to feel like shit and that's okay. But the point is like, you're paying attention to how you feel. Right. And if you really truly do follow the curiosity of your body, you'll end up being, in my opinion, much healthier because you're not, it's, it's a paradox, right? Like you're not directly pursuing better health, but because you're exploring the search space of your health, you're getting healthier. Um, and I think that that also like it's, Hey, it's on the individual to be able to learn how to take that approach. But then also talking about like health professionals, like you were saying, like people with degrees, right. Well, again, they're like, so disconnected. They might have dogmatic opinions on like how to do a certain thing. And I'm definitely of the, of the opinion that like, if you're a coach in some way, shape or form or a health professional, it's, it should be like your obligation to understand all these different types of things, regardless of what your profession specifically is, right? Like I mostly do CrossFit group class or personal training coaching or nutrition, yet I'm talking about all these other different things I've learned. And it's not, it's not my job to tell the other person what to do. It's my job, it's my opinion that it's my job to show them how to explore, but I can only understand potential avenues of that if I also explore my own health. Yeah. And so Right. And like their exploration is going to be different than mine, but kind of like we're talking about now, here's at least a way to understand fundamental principles that you can use, which is a skill and a tool that will take time to develop, but it will then allow you to get better at your health. Like you were talking a little bit about um, anxiety. I totally agree with that. Like as a coach, you should be able to help someone with anxiety, with depression. It, do, mm -hmm. it shouldn't only be this taboo clinical thing where like, hey, sorry, no medication only. Right. And obviously there's different extremes to like where, yes certain people will for sure absolutely need the benefit of someone that's clinically trained. Right. But there's, there's also a lot of context. Lot of, yeah. Right. And there's context, right. But there's also a lot of people out there that are kind of in a non-clinically uh, associated space. Uh, and we end up being afraid to try and help them because we think it's outside of our scope of practice. Like, well, it should be on you to try and learn more, to learn what works and be able to help them. Um, specific to the CrossFit realm, right? Like I see a lot of athletes that have anxiety because they're so focused on getting around on the workout, getting a certain score or like logging their score online to see if they've progressed over time. And they get so anxious thinking about this workout that they have to do. And it's like, are you even focusing on how you're hmm. doing it or what you feel the breathing yeah. that you're doing during it, right? Like connecting with your breath, connecting, like setting an intention for the workout um, and doing things like, Hey, do this workout and only focus on what you feel. Don't pay attention to time. Don't pay attention to the number of rounds you do. You're more likely to be healthy, right? Cause again, health is complex. You think you're healthier because you've improved these fitness numbers, but what if mentally you're screwed because you just have crippling anxiety right. based on the decisions you want to make. And then, you know, insert that type of context into any sport. Someone's a triathlon runner, someone's a gymnast, someone, you know, just likes to play like recreational sports. Well, it's not just what you're doing, but it's how you're doing it. And then it's on, you know, local health professionals, whomever they are to be well-versed in all these different things to be able to teach people how to explore their health, right? Like we're, we're essentially saying, we're going to teach you how to explore and we're going to help you along the way with constraints, but we're not really necessarily telling you what to do. And right. that's a really powerful thing. Yeah. I got this. I, my favorite term, 
uh, these days for like what a future health professional would be called as a health guide. <clears throat> and yep. I sort of, uh, I was at, my, uh, you know, last week was my monk week for first quarter. So I went to forest one and I was just like in nature for a long period of time. And as I was doing these hikes barefoot, um, I, I was kind of thinking like one thing we should offer here is a guided uh, barefoot hike where you mm. bring people on sort of this guided exploratory journey up some easy paths up the hill. Um, and you kind of show them cool things that they might not otherwise notice. And what I was thinking was like, okay, in that case, a guide is really just someone that's helping people explore a terrain. They won't necessarily mm -hmm. say, you need to go up this exact line. You need to follow every footstep I'm doing. But I've gone there and there's some poison ivy. So you shouldn't go there. Or these are areas that have some really cool stuff. So if you're into that, uh, if that aligns with you, maybe take that route, right? And so really what they're doing is just creating constraints. Don't go here. Here are places you can go. I've gone here and I know it's safe. Therefore, that could be an option, right? They're giving mm -hmm. you like permission to explore and, and a sense of confidence because they've already taken that path. And that's kind of what a health guide is. And I, I was listening to a podcast on uh, waking up with Francois Bourzat. And, you know, I'm, I'm getting really fascinated with uh, psilocybin and this revolution that could be coming in terms of mental health and yeah. recognition of the self. And so Forest One hopefully will eventually be like a facility where we can have guided experiences. But what she said was that when you're talking about a guide to guide someone through a psychedelic journey, um, that guide can only bring someone as deep as they've gone themselves. And so really what a health guide is, is someone who takes health the most seriously of maybe everyone else. They find a deep, deep purpose in their own health. Therefore, that qualifies them to then be a guide for others, not because they're doing it because it makes money. It's just like, I really care about my health. I take it seriously and I, I really put down a lot of data. I, I really explore a lot. Therefore, I'm the best person to help other people explore and share things that I've gone through, share my challenges. And I think that's just a really powerful term, health guide, because you can be a health guide with a specialty. You can be a doctor and be a health guide with a specialty in medicine, but you are not, uh, you're no longer a doctor, right? The identity, it's like identify with a purpose instead of a profession. You can still be a professional in that profession. You're not erasing yes. that part of your identity, but it is a sub-identity under the macro identity of a health guide because I am here to guide people towards better health. I do that by leveraging my experience with medicine, but I also have a broad awareness of all the things I need to know to be healthy, right? And back to that scope of practice thing with, with anxiety, it's like by alienating everyone else from being able to talk and have conversations and help people with anxiety, we are literally letting people go on the continuum to get to the extreme end where they then need help. And when they go mm -hmm. to find help, they're not even getting the most effective help to actually deal with it, right? I heard a great analogy the other day where some guy in the, in the United Kingdom after the war walks onto a bus with a, with a brown box and the bus driver says, what's in the box? He says, it's an unexploded uh, ordinate from the war. I'm bringing it to the, police, um, to the police department so that they can disarm it. And the bus driver says, what are you doing bringing a bomb onto the bus? Don't put that on your lap, put it under the seat. And like, that's the equivalent of like, I immediately I'm like, that's psychology, right? They're just telling you to like, take this pill, put it under the seat, but like, it's yeah. still there. You haven't gotten rid of the bomb. And I think if we, if we let us talk about anxiety, if we let people, if we let health guides help people at a basic level, right? Not the fringe cases where like someone needs literally medical yes. assistance or needs to see someone with really deep knowledge. If we let us talk about this and let, and, and see this as part of our scope, whatever I need to know to be mentally healthy as mm -hmm. an individual, I should be able to share with others. We can stop people from getting to the extreme and needing that extreme help, right? Like we can eliminate so much suffering by just 
stopping all this protective bullshit and, and being scared that other people are going to do our jobs by yeah. just being like, let's talk about health. Let's make the modern health professional, someone who's literate on all elements of health and know that like, okay, when it's beyond here, it's no longer your job anymore. Send it to the next person. Yep. But you know, that deburdens the health system. And it also makes health less scare health guidance, less scarce. And yes. this whole scarcity bullshit with degrees and how, you know, you have to pay all this money um, to do all these things that don't necessarily make you good at being a health guide. That creates this weird sense of scarcity where it becomes really expensive to get health advice. It becomes uh, you, you take, you give people a monopoly. Therefore there's no incentive to improve. There's no system of incentives in place where the better, like imagine the better you were at getting people healthy, the more you got paid, everyone would get really good. Like, yeah that's a really simple game theory to put in place in a system. And it's like, everyone will get healthy because it's like, you get paid to be good at your, what you do. And it's hard to get good. And you have to, but the cool thing is, is like, if you care about health and you take your health process seriously, you are getting good every day. And if you build up enough of that and you find purpose in helping others, that's the shit. Doesn't have to yeah. be that expensive to do. We just have to create a system around it. So yeah. learning about it. all this stuff is really makes it, it really clarifies like the path to that. So it's kind of cool. Yeah. And I, I mean, damn, I love the concept of a health guide. Yeah. That's still like, I, I, I love happen. that. Yeah. Um, I don't, and I don't I, know what context it'll happen in, but like, that's, I think that's the path. Like the footer program was like a skunk works experiment to see like, can we create a sense making community to build some in health intelligence yeah. and have conversations. And then the next kind of iteration is like, okay, let's scale this up. Let's refine it a bit. Let's make it, let's change the branding. So it's not, you know, foot nerd. Um, all yeah. the foot nerds will always have a special place in the world, I think. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I think the next evolution is like some sort of health guide program that is an act. I've always hated certifications, but what I realized is that there is some necessity to that as a yeah. way to control quality and allow people to have a sense of identity around that thing. So I think our first official certification, let's call it, will be, a, I think, some sort of health guide program. So I'm stoked to get you involved with that because we're going to need all hands on deck if we, if we want to do something huge. Oh, yeah. I'd love to be involved in something like that. Magic. Cool. Uh, anything else? I, I want to, I was going to bring up Q learning, but I, I, I still don't have a really good grasp on it. And I think I need a little bit more clarity. So, you know, unless you got anything else to chat about, we can wrap it up. And I'd love to do another, you know, after I listen to this, yeah. Uh, you know, in a week or two, I think it'll bring about a bunch of other ideas um, for like a round two, even if we touch on these elements or even talk about mm -hmm. like ways that we've seen these things more deeply since the last time we chatted. I think follow-ups on shit like this is good because you end up having a different way to explain the same thing as you get more clarity. So. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I guess I would just say not necessarily to like dive in, but like for anyone listening, things to continue to, you know, go down the rabbit hole on. And I think that would lead to potential cool conversations for like a round two um, would be obviously like cue learning, reinforcement learning, right? All this different stuff. We're essentially talking about different types of ways that they have artificial uh, intelligence algorithms like learning. Um, so like that's a cool concept that does apply in the real world. Um, and then also understanding more about your nervous system, I'd say would be the main thing, like things like the filiogenetic hierarchy, which is when we're talking about a person being in freeze, flow, fight, or flight, what those states feel like, how you can get into those states, how breathing affects those states, how your food, the context, right? You can have fixes that get you into those states, um, right? Like coffee can be a fix for the sympathetic the same way that uh, cannabis can be a fix for the parasympathetic. So mm -hmm. diving into understanding stuff like that and just like understanding that your health is going to be more and more 
complex again as you learn more but the big thing like that that that's okay um and yes yeah, so that's that's how i would kind of say like those are really good rabbit holes to dive down um that is just like such a cool way to explore your health and then how about maybe a good way to end off and we can each kind of pitch in our points here is like Someone comes up to you and says, Mitch, I heard your podcast uh, with Nick and I loved a lot of what you said. I, I want to engage with the process of health. I'm completely lost. I've been going straight up objective based. I'm yeah. realizing that all of my objectives that were towards health actually made me unhealthy. Where do I start? What can I do tomorrow morning? Tomorrow is a, I'm, pay, I'm turning the page. I'm releasing mm-hmm. that identity of objective based mindset. What do I do? What's one small thing I can do tomorrow? Um, that starts to, you know, like, I don't know how to play. I don't know how to explore. So what what can I do? And I think that out of the five pillars, um, movement is my biggest struggle. You know, like I I hurt everywhere. My knees hurt, my feet hurt. And you know, what, what's something I can do to play tomorrow? Yeah. Um, so yeah, if someone asked that, I would say, I, I go back to this and I still use it now. I would teach them how to do the rain mindfulness exercise. Mm. Um, so recognize, accept, investigate, and note the context of, of what you're feeling, but not just from a mindfulness sense, but again, extending that into the visceral of like, okay, well, you do experience pain, right? That's an internal receptor that also involves external stimuli. What does that feel like? Is it intense? Is it not as intense? Mm. And then that is going to have them to where I would say, here's this mindfulness technique, right? So I explain that, they understand it. Now they're exploring their pain and that's gonna force them to figure out, well, what causes it to be more painful? What causes it to be less painful? What if I'm in this position? What if I'm in that position? And then, right, if they have a beam, hopefully I can be like, explore what your pain feels like, but do it while you're on a beam, new constraint. Now we're seeing what's going on with reactive stability and that foot to hip connection. Um, And they're really getting quite an idea of what it's like to just explore this very, very, very focused area of discomfort. Um, And so that mindfulness technique and essentially learning how to look inward, not only from like, these are my thoughts, these are my emotions, but also this is what I'm feeling internally is really, really powerful. And so I would say that is gonna be a huge important step number one. And if you're looking to do something that additionally is another tool. So here's rain, main tool, sub sub play is gonna be play on the beam. Next version of exploring your health would be take the amount of protein that you have and save it for the nighttime when you're best likely to digest it and you're not stressed and doing work. Um, That's the main Mm. thing we do with people on nutrition and essentially is like, you're more likely to digest it. And the reason why I suggest that is because it has such a drastic impact on sleep that it's a really quick way to get people to realize, holy shit, I didn't know my sleep was bad. I didn't know I could feel this way. And I didn't know that my body felt like this when I ate certain things at certain times. So teach them how to do rain. If in the case of movement pain, play on a beam and be aware of what the pain feels like when you feel it, when you don't feel it, if the sensation increases or decreases and try eating animal protein at nighttime after you're done your workday, once you've chilled and once you've rest and be amazed at how ridiculously good your sleep quality starts to get. That's awesome. Those are great. Those are great little tidbits. I mean, the one that I've been throwing out there lately is just like, take your shoes off, go for a walk, go on at least four different textures and don't have any other input coming into your body. No phone, no, no uh, audio, no nothing. Just like take your shoes off, go for a walk, four different textures. Think of how they, how it feels. That's oh, it. Damn, that's a good one. And it's like shocking how people are like, wow, I never knew what grass or I forgot what grass felt like. I'm like in my head, I'm like, Jesus, <laughs> you got to oh connect. God. <laughs> yeah. And so, yeah. So if you're listening, hopefully there's some practical tidbits. Um, 
If you want to find out more, uh, tell people where they can find out more about you, Mitch, and what you got going on, because I know you got some exciting stuff. I won't say anything about it because I don't know if you want it to be out there yet, but he does have some cool stuff coming up. And yeah, tell the people where they can find out more if they want to learn more from you. Yeah. So you guys can find me on Instagram at sweet Mitch. So that's sweet period underscore period. Mitch, <laughs> right. <laughs> I, uh, I, I share most of my, my stuff on there. That's how you can, if you wanted to, you know, uh, consult me as a potential uh, health guide, uh, I'm on there doing, you know, fitness stuff for programming, nutrition, all that fun stuff. Um, and if you're in the Florida area, right. I coach at a gym in South Tampa, South Tampa CrossFit. So if you're, if you live near there, come on by, um, and yeah, definitely like cool. H- haven't finished it yet, but writing a book on health, um, yeah. and it essentially, right. is like an in-depth dive into a little bit of what we've talked about today. Um, so that'll be hopefully coming out maybe within the next like 12 to 18 months or so. Again, not really setting an objective on it, just exploring it. Um, <laughs> yes. but yeah, easiest way to get in contact with me is through, uh, Instagram. That's usually how I communicate with most of the athletes that I work with. Cool. Very cool. Yeah. Congrats on the, uh, I'm ex- and by the way, I've already shotgun one of the first copies. So back off people. Um, and, uh, Ruth, Ruth, side note, Ruth O'Donnell, the director of the footnote program is, uh, heading down. They went to Tampa, her and her husband and they loved it. So they're just moving down there for like three months of the year from mobile. So you'll have, ah. uh, she's just like, she's kind of, she's basically my personal assistant. I talked to her the most out of everyone. And she's just a, she's just a ninja. She gets shit done and she's just an awesome, fun human. So You'll have to connect with her when uh, yeah, I'll definitely she gets do down that. there. And now I have a double whammy excuse to get down to Tampa. So I'll, I'll get down there at some point when. The yes. Um, I so know, anyway, right? anyway, folks, we hope that you enjoyed that one. Um, I know I'm going to have a listen to this and, and I'll have to take down some notes because sometimes when people, when you're having a conversation with someone and it just, you, you kind of go down that tangent, like I said, you start mm-hmm. to take in less of what they're saying, which probably isn't a good thing, but it, at least it keeps it rolling. So um, yeah, we hope that was good and we'll catch you in the next episode. Thanks for tuning in. Ciao.